I see data people. And welcome to Inside the Analyst's Cubicle. Here we dive deep to get to know one of our data fam data artists, from the famous to the not so famous, learning about their beginnings, their middles, and what they're going to do next. So sit back, relax, and join me as we get to know Zach Bowders just a little bit better. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm uh, excited to be uh, the first person in the hot seat. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting ride, so we'll see where it goes. So let's dive into some probing questions. Please take a moment to introduce yourself to the listeners, for they may not know who you are. So I'm Zach Bowders. Um, I am a BI specialist at Jones Lang LaSalle. And previously before that, I spent 13 years at ALSAC St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, JLL is a real estate services company. So uh, what I do there is I support uh, different organizations in managing their properties uh, through analytics. What I previously did at uh, ALSAC was I helped fundraise uh, to uh, basically end pediatric illnesses like cancer. And you're also a Tableau Zen master. That, that's a thing too. Also a Tableau ambassador, a two-time uh, Vizzy award winner, um, and uh, the host of the Data Plus Love podcast, which if you're listening to this and don't know what that is, that, that's, that's something. So let's roll back a little bit further. Tell me about your education. How did you get to where you are today? That's a great question. So I, uh, I always was a, uh, a computer nerd. So I think uh, this is going to date me and uh, possibly mortify me, but I think it might have been the movie Hackers where I first got into uh, computers, which is a terrible example because Hackers, uh, if you haven't seen it, is uh, an Angelina Jolie, Johnny Lee Miller uh, vehicle from the early uh, 90s. Whew, that uh, if, if you watch that thing, it's it's bad, man. But um, I... I it sort of opened my eyes to, Hey, computers are cool, which was a thing because my family didn't even have a computer, like until, uh, midway through high school, uh, in the nineties, um, I graduated in 2000. Uh, we didn't have a family computer. My dad, uh, worked for the labor relations board. And there was a time where he would be able to, at a certain point, he got a laptop and would be able to bring that home. And I could like do word processing on it. But up until then I was basically doing everything on like an electric typewriter. So I was, I was always late to the game in tech, but I loved the idea. And in college, uh, I chose for my major um, management information systems in the business school at the University of Memphis. And uh, partway through doing that, sort of working through my um, business general education classes, I found that I also really loved marketing. So I added marketing as a second major and did some summer school classes and basically kept on track with like a four-year uh, education plan uh, while graduating with two bachelor's degrees. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, so how did you find yourself in data? Was that your first job, like in a data space, or was it something different? My career journey is uh, varied and strange. So 
Uh, like I said, I, I finished two bachelor's degrees in four years. And around the time I was graduating was right around the time Hurricane Katrina had hit. Um, so when I had started my education, it was like the dot-com era was booming, right? So there were people getting hired on my school with like $40,000 signing bonuses as like a junior. Um, by the time I was graduating as a senior, not only were people not getting those offers, people weren't getting offers, period. So um, between that and there was the sudden influx of sort of Katrina refugees sort of moving upwards because a lot of people had to relocate. Um, and the area was really generous offering lots of jobs to people that have been displaced. But unfortunately, if you're a recent graduate, you know, that's, that's unfortunate competition for you in the job market. So I decided, okay, I am going to uh, get my MBA right now. So I immediately uh, entered into the MBA program as a, as a new graduate, which probably isn't advisable. Like there's a reason most MBA programs require you to have like life experience because taking MBA classes as a recent graduate, a lot of them are very similar to classes you just took. And honestly, getting an MBA is no more difficult than getting your undergraduate degree. The classes are often taught by the same professors, have a lot of the same materials. There's just a lot more group work. So um, I got an assistantship. So I had two jobs while I was in graduate school. I worked at a swimming pool store in the mornings and on Saturdays. And in the afternoons, I worked in my assistantship until five o'clock in the afternoon, which paid for my school and gave me a small stipend. Then in the evenings, I took classes from seven to 10. And then uh, when I finished classes in the evening, I drove back to my apartment uh, 30 minutes away from school, um, did homework while watching like whatever um, rerun comedies were on Fox. So I think Girlfriends was on Fox in very heavy rotation during that time. So I got very familiar with Girlfriends. And uh, after a year and a half, because if you're taking an assistantship, you have to do your graduate studies at double pace. So instead of a three-year program, it's a year and a half program. So after a year and a half, I finished my MBA and was promptly unemployed for six months. So I finished and the job market had not improved. In fact, my options had worsened because now not only was I more educated, which meant I could probably ask for a higher salary, I still had no on-the-job experience outside of maybe working at the swimming pool store I had worked at or my graduate studies. So I was actually unemployed for six months to the point where I not only burned through all my savings, but um, my I had no family in the area. My uh, parents had actually moved to Pennsylvania around the time I was graduating from college. Um, so I had the option where I could either basically move back and live in my parents' house or try to like make it work here. And I said, try to make it work while working, looking for work. And I actually, um, I ran out of savings and I uh, got to the point where I applied for food stamps. So I applied for food stamps and was turned down. And then I had to appeal my rejection for food stamps and then got approved. So uh, I was on food stamps while looking for a job. Um, I was only on them for about three months. So I, I definitely, uh, it developed a lot of like empathy for me in the area of people sort of needing a social safety net in the sense that, yeah, I probably could have like crashed with someone or moved back home, but I definitely see how it, it could be very easy for people being only a couple paychecks away from needing some sort of assistance to help them get back on their feet. But anyway, I, I got a job um, at a bank um, as an assistant loan officer, which paid about $30,000. Um, and uh, I had no affinity for banking or real or finance or accounting or any of that. I liked computers, man. Um, but I got this job and uh, I was not really passionate about it. And also it was for real estate mortgage loans. So imagine it's 2005 
and you work for a place that makes real estate mortgage loans. Also not the best place to be. So I worked in that for about a year and a half. And eventually I got my first job at St. Jude, which was a lateral move in terms of salary. So I took my first job there at also about $30,000 as it was called an assistant systems analyst, which wasn't really systems analysis. It was really a developer role. And uh, they developed in this super archaic programming language called Edge, which if you can imagine like the uh, grayish, greenish Game Boy screens of old, and then imagine a Mad Lib. So, you know, in Mad Libs, you fill in the blanks to sort of make your story. It was programming via that. So you could say you could, you could choose the name of like a field or something and then choose your operator and then choose a, another action or a different field to combine it with. So the whole thing was based on sort of that logic. And that was my, uh, my first foray into that. And it took about 10 years of various development roles, business analyst roles, and then ultimately BI roles before I even touched a data analysis tool. I think SQL was my first exposure to data in its, its rawest form. And I've never been really formally taught SQL. It was always something I had to pick up on the job in order to keep going. But um, I'd say my skills are very intermediate because I've never really had a formal education and you know, how to do it really well. So with that then, when you get a new data set, whether personally or professionally, uh, how do you approach it? Like, you know, especially if you've got little to no requirements, especially, and I guess that probably falls more to the personal side. Um, so maybe touch both. So, you know, when you're working a personal data set, what's your approach? And then maybe from a professional sense, when you're working with stakeholders, how is the requirement piece fall into that? I've always had very iffy experiences with requirements in uh, in life in general, because sometimes you'll get that very concrete set of requirements that someone passes to you, uh, where like this is exactly what they want. You know, they might even have like a vision board where they've put it together like the like they've imagined the dashboard of their dreams. And in those cases, I always sort of take uh, not the skeptics approach, but the the curious approach. Like, tell me why. I'd like to know more because. Many times people have sort of a prescriptive response for what they're really looking for. But as the analyst, your job is to sort of get between them and the data and figure out uh, the, the real questions that need to be answered. Because many times they'll say, well, I need something that shows me, you know, value per year or something. And then the question will be like, why do you need to know value per year? Because I'm trying to figure out this thing. And I say, oh, well, I don't know if value per year answers that. Isn't there something else that answers that more directly? And then you sort of look through the data set and the different you know, aspects of it. And you, you sort of turn that back around and say, now, would this thing be a better answer for, for sort of what we're thinking about here? So I always, uh, if someone has, has sort of been prescriptive and like, I need a bar chart that says this, I sort of take the approach, like, don't tell me which chart to make. Tell me uh, what your question is. And I can help us both get to the optimal chart there. But in terms of uh, just getting a data set and not really knowing it, I tend to sort of uh, just rapid prototype a lot of different charts to sort of familiarize myself with it. And honestly, many times what's not there because a lot of data sets you'll find are are just incomplete, you know, whether uh, that's just due to the data collection or maybe there's errors or maybe the March didn't load one day or something like that. But it's it's amazing what you can find very quickly, just uh, receiving a data set and starting to look at it and then start asking questions. And you say, Salzman, hey, do you know, 
2017 uh, only had the first six months worth of data. And they'll be like, really? And it's uh, the kind of conversations that start that way. So how do you go about choosing your personal projects? Because as I go through your Tableau public profile, it's varied. It's like some people have a distinct style. And while you don't have a distinct style, you have a distinct style, if you know what I mean. So I feel like there's there's some method to the madness on how you choose your personal projects. Uh, that's an excellent question because I myself am often not sure. I will tell you, I'll go through um, long periods and long periods by my definition now might be different from someone else's definition of long periods. For me, um, a long period without creating a new visualization on on public would be like two weeks. Um, so at the at the two week mark, I start to think, I, I guess I'm out of ideas, and and then I start to have the creeping. I guess I guess I'm done. Like maybe I'm creatively bankrupt. Maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I never had good idea. You know that sort of thing. And then eventually you get around to uh, to a new idea. But um, a, a lot of times it really comes as simple as uh, let me think about stuff I like. And then let me think about uh, ways that it could be visualized. So I have um, a visualization I talk about a lot, which is my Inception visualization, because you know, the movie Inception has this complicated plot of sort of multi-tiered uh, dreams where you're sort of a dream within a dream. It's like running multiple VM machines, you know, inside each other. And um, I was thinking about that one day and I was thinking like, do I really understand how this movie works? Like I tell people I like this movie, but do I really get it? And uh, then as I started to try to draw out how the movie works, I realized I didn't understand it quite as well as I thought I did. So I went back and watched it again. And while I was watching, I'm like, okay, so you're in this first dream and then you enter into Arthur's dream, which is the snow for, you know, that sort of thing. As I'm drawing it, I realize you've got these different characters and essentially they were living these parallel paths. And at certain points, one character sort of leaves the path because they've been left behind and everyone else continues onward. So it's, you know, you could kind of draw this thing as like a sort of linear map of some kind. But yeah, a lot of times um, ideas come from strange places. And sometimes I think my takes on them work. Sometimes they don't. And that that's where ideas like I've been doing something I call the data dump come from, which it looks like a little zine. I think I've done about four or five of them at this point. And the idea behind the data dump was sometimes I have like a very small idea that I'm curious about but I don't really want to have to go through the effort of developing like a sort of full themed dashboard uh, or, or like concept around it. Like when, I, when I'm thinking of visualizations, I always want to have a title that that's snappy. Like it's got to say something and the title also has to look good. Like um, it's very easy to, to have a title that might sound good, but doesn't really grab your attention in any way. So I, I want to make something impactful and vivid that draws you in you know, by asking a question or, or making a statement, and then you have to look at it. But beyond that, uh, things like the data dump where, okay, if I sort of make a template where I can recycle some ideas, like, okay, it's going to have a headline. It's going to have a little sidebar where I can editorialize to my heart's content. And then I'm going to put maybe two or three charts on here, which explore a concept. And since I've already limited myself in space, I've uh, sort of limited myself um, in terms of what I can put on here, which is a good thing. Like I've always found for me, creative limitations actually make me more creative. Um, and if you tell me stuff is wide open and I can do anything I want, like uh, no shade thrown, but the latest Iron Viz uh, feeder for this year is what you like. 
which sounds like a like a, a Jeopardy question or something. It's like, what do you like? And it's like, I like everything, you know. And uh, when you when you sort of put stuff like that out there, sometimes it can be daunting because there's so much, and narrowing the scope can be arduous. But by by limiting the scope, not only in topic but also in uh, screen real estate, I force myself to be a little more cogent and maybe what I'm saying than if I uh, went long form storytelling, which I think I've only ever done. Uh, maybe two or three visas, which would be considered scrolly telling where you have to scroll down the page in order to get the whole story. Yeah, that data dump series is, has been fascinating to watch. Um, there's a couple of visas, though, that I'm actually like just big fans of that I wanted to, to look at. And uh, they go back in your portfolio a little bit. And the first one is the first three, which was about uh, trilogies. Um, can you walk us through that a little bit, kind of what the process was, what inspired it? Sure. So, um, it was coming up on Halloween and sometimes I sort of, I usually don't come up with sort of, uh, themes around times a year. Like if, if you ever check out like data is beautiful on Reddit or something, you'll find that a lot of people are sort of very strategic when they, uh, release stuff. Like if the new theme, uh, new season of Game of Thrones is starting, you'll see a lot of Game of Thrones uh, themed visits, or if it's football season or what have you, uh, there'll be a lot of stuff topical to that because it sort of helps the numbers. But as it's around Halloween, and I think the previous Halloween, I had looked at horror movies. I'm like, I'd like to revisit the idea because a lot of horror movies um, have sort of long running uh, franchises, which oftentimes drop off a lot sooner than you expected. So there might be like 17 Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I might be exaggerating there, but I don't think by too much, but like the quality might've dropped off after three or, or something like that. So I was putting this data set together and I was going to compare all these different series and they all had various, various lengths and that sort of thing. And then at a certain point I thought, well, what if I sort of just distill this down and take it back to like the first three, because there was already so much variation in quality across the first three films of various series. So I'm like, okay, I, I would like to do a small multiple of this. And I actually have, um, and I can give it to you to put in the show notes or whatever. I have a little notebook where I often draw some ideas. It's just a little um, composition notebook. You can get them at Target and it's graph paper. It's great. They're like 50 cents. And it's really great for plotting on business. So I came up with this idea. Okay, I'm going to have three horizontal bars of some kind. Uh, each one will say the Rotten Tomatoes score for each of the first three movies, and we'll do a small multiples and maybe make it in like a giant triangle shape. So that kind of limits how many uh, different franchises I can put in there. Um, I think it was Jeff Schaefer who gave me a tip on some of my formatting because I'd done an earlier release um, about uh, about spacing this out. And he gave me a tip to help uh, basically put some extra room between just small multiples because it's very easy uh, if you do small multiples for stuff to feel crowded and sort of blend in together, which then gives you the temptation to throw more lines on the page, but that creates more like cognitive noise and, and then it's less design savvy. So I think Jeff gave me the idea, add totals and then just cover up the totals, uh, which would create the necessary spacing that I wanted for my, uh, my charts, but also give them enough room that you could each see each of the franchises distinctly as their own. They don't all run together. And uh, they're all visually unique. And I think the uh, crowning touch for me was, uh, since I was thinking about it in terms of Halloween and scary movies, I went with candy corn style colors for the movie. So I did a yellow and uh, I mean, a white, an orange and a yellow sort of descending order um, to highlight uh, the, the different colors of the movies. Yeah. And just a, a couple of the key things that I, I love from this viz are, are just the little things. 
Um, the first one is using the title as the legend where you've got the one, two, three to designate what order the films are. And then the, uh, the kind of narrative above how to read this nonsense. Um, just the, t- the tongue in cheek nature of it kind of just fits so well with the horror movie theme. It was just fantastic. Um, the second viz that I'm just a huge fan of, of yours from your portfolio is Mary and the names that defined our generation. And this was one of the long scrolly telling ones. Um, so tell me about this one. So I actually remember when I was working on this. So it was probably last March. So it was uh, still early COVID times. So all of us had been sent home, um, particularly for me living in Memphis, the first two weeks uh, during COVID. Um, not only was I suddenly at home, not only was there a worldwide pandemic, uh, my work had gone nuts at my old job. Everyone was sort of freaking out. So they're they're asking me to project, uh, you know, how much we might lose as a result of this. Which, uh, you know, when when you quote like an unprecedented uh, global pandemic, you you have to reiterate to people, you know, projections are based on precedent, and this lacks precedent. I don't have I don't have something to work with there. So uh, I spent the first two, and also the first two weeks, it was raining nonstop. So I was sort of stuck uh, in my office with my uh, nose against a wall because at the time my office was configured. So my, my computer screen was against a nice blue wall uh, with an entire room behind me. And since uh, working from home full-time, I've changed the room. So I now have a whole room in front of me. Um, and uh, I was overwhelmed. So I started uh, after a couple of weeks and the new normal started to sink in. I started to look at new projects. And uh, there's this data set of U.S. baby names that I had already iterated on twice. So it's uh, names by birth year. So you can get an idea of volume of names being born at any specific time for the U.S. And uh, the names and also sort of gender of the child, male or female. So, you know, sometimes like I have a, a friend, Michael, who's who's female and there are plenty of male Michaels too. So it was kind of cool that you could look at the two names uh, differently by gender as sort of compare the popularity of more unisex names uh, in that way. So I'd already done a uh, one version uh, using that data set where it's kind of like a, uh, a card like that you might send a friend where you could compare two names. So you're sort of comparing your relationship by, by seeing when your names are popular. And then there's a second take I did on it, which was around Mambo number five, uh, using the, the names and ages of the girls in that song to estimate about how old the girls would have been in 1999 had they been born in the peak year for like Angela or Pamela. And... Um, uh, so uh, one thing I, I tend to practice is I think about reusing data sets more than once because oftentimes with work stuff, uh, unless it's, you know, just a one-off, uh, you're going to probably come back to the same data set again to do more work or answer different questions. So I like to come back and look at stuff and think, is there other stuff here that I could be doing with this? So as I was looking at that, I was wondering, um, you know, we, we know the different generations and we're able to define them in the United States. Um, what names were more popular when, and sort of, uh, is there a lot of crossover? Do some names have a lot of staying power? Um, how does it compare for men and women? And, uh, the first chart you actually see on this. So the main design premise of this is based around area charts, um, but area charts that are segmented out by generation. So you can see them sort of sliced up as if you were slicing, I don't know, fudge or something. Uh, I don't know why I chose fudge, roll with it. Um, so uh, you can look at it and see, okay, so Mary in the greatest generation was the most popular female name. And Mary had its heyday uh, in the greatest generation and silent generation and boomers. And then 
around Gen X started to drop off quite a bit. And now there aren't a ton of Gen Z uh, Marys being born. And uh, John is the male Mary for that same period. And while it had more staying power, it's also tapering off in the modern age. Um, but the last chart I thought of when I, I was putting this together is actually the first chart you see. So it's a simple line chart. Um, it goes across the uh, six generations that I had data for, which is greatest through Gen Z. And it's just two simple lines, one for male names and one for female names. And it's just a count of distinct names represented in each generation. So if you look at it, male and female names back in the greatest generation were actually really close in terms of the count of distinct names that were being used. But if you look at that compared to by the time you reach Gen Z, not only have both grown significantly in terms of the volume of distinct, unique names that are being used, but the gap has actually widened between men and women. Like women's, uh, women's names are more experimental, it seems, or maybe more diverse or you know more creative. I don't know. Um, and men's names are maybe more conservative in that regard and that there's less of them. I mean, definitely less conservative than they used to be because it's a lot more than back in the greatest generation. Um, but yeah, there's still a significant gap there. So yeah, there, a lot of this came down to uh, just personal curiosity um, about using the same data set again. Um, me experimenting with a different type of making a visualization. So like I said, I don't typically do the long form scrolly telling. It's not something I generally like, but in this case, I thought it would be a useful way to display this data. And at the end of the day, I think it turned out looking really nice how I, I was able to sort of scroll down the page and tell the story of uh, American names and sort of see how times have changed and how by the time you get to Gen Z and are able to look at the most popular names uh, for boys and girls being born, you've got Emily and Jacob. Emily and Jacob uh, were both names that were very small back in the greatest generation. And by today's standards, they may be some of the most popular, but they're still dwarfed by um, the like Mary and John at their peak. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that we've got so many more names that we use now. Yeah, it's it's fascinating just the way that it's laid out, the story that it tells, and the fact that it's the third iteration on the data set and all three iterations are just, you know, fantastic in their own rights and, and completely different. Um, so how has, has Tableau Public enhanced your skills? Like, like what has it done for you? Because I feel like um, for many, it's it's been a drop of rocket fuel. I, I think it's opened up a lot of possibilities. And I think one thing that it does very quickly, um, I've used this example before talking to other people, but I had a Sunday school teacher years ago who was a secret service agent. And um, something a lot of people don't realize about the secret service is that they're also in charge of a lot of treasury stuff. Um, so like counterfeiting, for example, and he would talk about how um, with counterfeit bills, the way they train secret service agents isn't to just go around showing them a lot of counterfeit bills. They just make sure they handle a lot of legit money so that by the time they see something that's counterfeit or touch something that's counterfeit, they might not know what exactly at first, but they know something's not right about it. And they've, they've had enough experience with it uh, that they'll be able to figure it out and say, okay, so what's going on here is that you know Jefferson's hand is, is weird or something. Um, so I think one of the great things about Tableau Public and sort of greater social media engagement, um, you know, for me, that came in the form of Twitter. I know a lot of people prefer LinkedIn. I think there's more personality on Twitter for better or worse in general. I know Twitter can be a bit of a firestorm at large. I think the data fam is one of the better corners of it, but even we're not immune to stuff at times. 
Um, and uh, LinkedIn is, you know, to me, it's, it's very businessy, which is when I'm doing something for fun, less the space I want to interact in, but that's okay. But I think um, just seeing a lot of different work being thrown out there was really beneficial for my work product, both in terms of personal projects, as well as professionals, because all of a sudden I have a lot more stuff to draw from in terms of inspiration, but I also start, you know, developing uh, opinions and aesthetics and thoughts, uh, which if you sort of limited your scope to what you and maybe your two closest work colleagues are creating, you've got a very limited scope in terms of what's, what's possible in the first place. But also, uh, you're going to have a very limited idea of what's good. Um, and that's not to say what you're doing is bad, but what you're doing could probably be better, but you don't know it yet. I remember I had colleagues back when I was at St. Jude who worked in a different division. They were sort of very cloistered off. like They didn't have a lot of um, interaction with other people. And one of their managers asked, hey, would you be willing to take some time to sit down with somebody and, and talk with them about some of their dashboards and stuff? And I'm like, I'd love to. Uh, so they, they showed me this dashboard and they're like, oh, man, our senior leadership loves this dashboard. Like, this is a hot dashboard. I'm like, oh, cool. I look forward to seeing it. Uh, so they showed me the dashboard and um, it was a cross tab that scrolled both vertically and horizontally. So it it was probably like at least... I think it had both years and months running horizontally. So it could scroll for quite a bit horizontally and then also vertically. So there's a lot going on there, but that believe it or not, that wasn't the thing that first caught my eye. The thing that first caught my eye is if you're the least bit familiar with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, uh, the brand color is sort of a bright burgundy. Um, and it's like a child logo with their hands, like cupped one of our, uh, our chief marketing officer once joked, uh, her daughter referred to it as the kid holding their cell phone. Uh, which uh, almost certainly wasn't the idea when it was created because it, it's outdated cell phones. It was more of like a prayerful or, or grateful expression. But uh, with, with this red color being the most prominent brand color and the second most prominent brand color um, being thanks and giving, which comes around uh, Thanksgiving time, uh, it's heavily features Marla Thomas, and that's like a bright neon green. So uh, people that would get excited about brand colors would run to those as the color to use for their... BI product, which you can imagine uh, the directions that would go. In this case, the direction that went was uh, this person hadn't had a lot of exposure to other sorts of data visualizations. So first they're listing the data like explicitly. It's like they're trying to recreate a database, but almost making it more complex than it was before. But uh, they, they wanted to put some personality and they wanted it to not be boring, which is a good impulse. Uh, so what they did was they chose the brand color, they chose the burgundy red and made that the background. So uh, as soon as you open the dashboard, the very first thing your eyes go to is not the data. <laughs> um, so it's that kind of thing that uh, Tableau Public and, and just sort of seeing a lot of other people's work helps to whittle away from you because if you had been on you know uh, Twitter for a month and watched people's Makeover Mondays, you would have gotten that out of your system real fast. Um, especially if you're participating because your very first stuff that you're putting out in public is going to be mortifying to you later, unless you just come as a fully formed product, which I think there's some people like Steven Shoemaker who like, by the time they made the scene, like they already kind of knew what they were doing, or I don't know, maybe he's a prodigy. I'll, I'll ask Steven, but um, some people hit and they, they already seem to know what they're doing by the time they arrive. A lot of people don't. And for those of them that are, that are brave or foolish, or I don't know me, uh, leave it in their portfolio. We say to show people that you can grow uh, or maybe because I forgot to delete them or what have you, but 
you know, you're going to have embarrassing things in the past. And it's that kind of stuff that by iterating and sort of working diligently and seeing what other people are doing and interacting with others that you, uh, you get out of your system and then get to your better product. Like Malcolm Gladwell, I think talked about the 10,000 hours, which I think uh, has then been debunked, which I don't even know how you could prove in the first place. So I also don't know how you can debunk it. Um, but, but either way, I, the, the point seems sound to me, which is if you want to get good at something, do it a lot. Um, and if you want to get good at data visualization, do it a lot and expose yourself to a lot of it and you'll get better. All right. So now we're going to move into the speed round. So stream of consciousness, whatever pops in your head, let's roll. What was the first viz you remember seeing on Tableau Public? Uh, Rody Zakovich's Queen Viz with uh, Freddie Mercury's uh, mic raised and a rainbow of album covers descending into it, or a rainbow of albums. It was the first Viz I remember seeing, and it was the first Viz that made me realize Data Viz could look like anything. What's your favorite Viz that you've created? Oh, um, I'm going to say my Tenant Viz, not because it's uh, particularly creative but because it meant that I understood tenant, which I think was a feat. What's your least favorite viz you've created? Um, whew, the, there's a couple early makeover Mondays that I did where I was clearly very bored by the data set. So I decided to put a lot of clip art on them. If, if you open up my portfolio and give your mouse like a good spin so you can get past like 160 something vizs, uh, about the first five down there are pretty mortifying. What's your favorite chart type? Bar chart. Uh, I use it extensively. It's very versatile. Um, it's harder to mess up. And uh, if you do it well, it can look really nice. What's your least favorite chart type? Um, packed bubbles because it looks nice if you do it right, but is still not useful when it does. What's your favorite Tableau feature? Um, I love parameters, uh, because I like being able to swap out, uh, aspects of charts on the fly. So changing the measures on them, uh, you know, swapping out, uh, sometimes you can even swap out entire charts if you're feeling creative. Yeah. I, I love parameters. It gives you a lot of power. Who inspires you from a data viz sense? Wow. Um, gosh, I, I think, um, Hans Rosling really like, just uh, the, you know, the power of watching his TED talk and, and sort of seeing the data in motion, but also like understanding this much bigger reality about like, you know, mankind and sort of where society is headed and whether we all realize that that's been going on or not. Like it was just very inspirational to me and made me realize uh, the, the potential power of data visualization. How many viz ideas are still sitting on your computer unfinished? I think there's about four in my Tableau public portfolio, which I used to say there were none, which is no longer true. Cause I've got about four that I think I started in some capacity. There's like a doctor who one. Uh, there is one about disaggregating data and there's just a couple small ones like that, where I got the idea started going. I think I'm, I'm currently working on like a Lord of the Rings one where I was trying to come up with the journey of like the, uh, I guess the nine main characters in the beginning and then 10, if you count Gollum. Um, but yeah, th those are a real, real complex to figure out. Describe the Tableau community in a single word. 
busy. And with a final hat tip to James Lipton, what is your favorite curse word? With that, I want to thank you for joining us today, Zach. I appreciate your willingness to open the robe for the audience and for us to learn a bit more about you as you sit inside the analyst's cubicle. Good day, dear listener. Music for this episode comes from Take Time, a track called Triumph of Light. Hey, you're still here. Um, you're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash D-A-T-A-P-L-U-S-L-O-V-E. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks to your patronage. Have a great day.